Well, friends, this morning, as we now transition into the preaching of the word, I want to provide us a brief uh, word of encouragement for us to get things started here. A word of hope, if you will. See, the kingdom of God, as we've been praying about already, the kingdom of God is indeed advancing here and in our world. If you are in Christ, the kingdom of God, its very nature is in fact to break through your pain, through your sufferings, through your sorrows that you face here in this life. And the kingdom of God is animated and vivid in front of us and made to be seen by nothing less than the word of God spoken to us. This word of God speaks of healing, of soundness of mind, of joy incomprehensible, of grace indelible to us. And as Jesus said in Luke 13 regarding the kingdom of God and the word of God's advancement through this kingdom of grace, he said these words, what is the kingdom of God like then? Or to what shall you liken it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And Jesus went on to say this in Luke 13 as well, to what then shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid or kneaded into three measures of flour until it was all leavened. My prayer for us this morning in regard to the kingdom of God is that we would take comfort in the fact that this kingdom and this message of the word of God that we're about to read of here is advancing. And it's advancing here in our midst. In fact, the word of God is purposed. It's designed to advance. And here, as we move into Acts 13 this morning, specifically Acts 12, 24 through chapter 13, verse 3, we're going to see it described in three ways. Three ways, three vehicles, so to speak, in how the kingdom of God actually advanced in our midst. So let's go ahead and read of that this morning. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the reading of God's word. Uh, Again, this comes to us from Acts 12, verse 24 through 13. This is the word of God forever faithful and true and given to us in love. And it says this to us this morning. Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The word of God, again, is forever faithful and true. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Let's go ahead and pray before we uh, dive into our sermon this morning. Father in heaven, we ask that you would use this time as your word has been pronounced over us, your word unchanging, uh, that it would do a work in our own souls that you yourself have purposed for it to do in our souls. We know that it always is purposed to accomplish that for which you have sent it out. And so we ask God that you would 
Um, encourage our souls. Bless us through this time. And lift our eyes to Jesus Christ. For there is no other hope or help in this world. So may we see Jesus in this text. And may we be so comforted by his love and his grace. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, turning back, if you will, to Acts 12, verse 24, there at the beginning, uh, I want to remind us of what it says right here. Uh, it says, the word of God increased and it multiplied. Here it's describing the word of God with a sense of animation and vibrancy because the word of God itself brings to life things that were once dead. It produces the growth of the kingdom in our own souls, even us, let alone the church abroad throughout all the nations. And it does this in front of the eyes of the watching world. And it does this in particular through these three things that we're about to see in our text. It does it through discipleship. It does it through worship. And it does it through personal sacrifice even. So here in our text, we'll see the first of these things in verses 24 through 25. Uh, here in our text, Peter uh, earlier on in Acts 12, had just been released from prison. And Herod Agrippa, the king, had lost a grip on his own life, so to speak. <laughs> and now the narrative of Acts, though, shifts its focus away from all these events in Jerusalem and begins to focus once again on the church in Antioch. What was going on there? See, we're about to move here, even throughout the entire book of Acts, away from Jerusalem, away from Judea and Samaria, and now to a focus upon the ends of the earth from this time in Acts 13 all the way until the end in Acts 28. Now, if you think back, though, to the very beginning of Acts in Acts 1.8, this as much was prophesied from Christ, that the gospel would indeed advance from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Christ told his disciples that you will be my witnesses in each of these areas. In other words, Christ's kingdom was coming for the world and for the world's good. See, like a mustard seed, as I mentioned earlier from Luke 13, it would be established and it would grow and give life. And much like that yeast, it would infest in the best way possible the dough all around it so that it would rise up. This working out of the kingdom of grace through the word of God would affect the world in various ways. And we've seen transitions like this, like we just saw in verse 24, three times now in the book of Acts. See, earlier, if you recall, back, way back really at this point, several weeks ago, in Acts 6, verse 7, this much was made obvious. Uh, it said the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. A little later on in Acts 9, verse 31, it used a little bit of different language, but it described the same thing. It said, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And additionally, walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And so now here in Acts 12, verse 24, we see the third of these transitions. Again, going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, now to the ends of the earth. And again, the vehicle that the Lord used here at the very tail end of Acts 12 was the vehicle of discipleship. Verse 25 tells us that Barnabas and Saul had just returned from their business in Jerusalem. 
They had just delivered the contribution to the church there in Jerusalem who was about to experience all kinds of famine and they needed relief through all this time. And now Barnabas and Saul were returning from Jerusalem to go right back on mission to serve there at this young, bristling church plant in Antioch, just 200 miles north of Jerusalem. But do you know something special here going on in verse 25? Something a little unique about what it says here. See, it says that they brought with them John, who is also called Mark. Now, the Greek word here for this idea of bringing along somebody uh, is found only three times throughout the rest of the New Testament. It's used again of Mark in Acts 15, verse 37 and 38, and it's used when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Galatians in Galatians 2, verse 1, when he brought Titus along with them, again, on a missions trip, if you will. The word in the Greek here is a fun word to say. It's soon paralevantes, which again, is just way too fun. I couldn't pass that up. But it literally means to bring someone along with you, to let them tag along with you like a child and his mother or father. I can imagine to, to illustrate, many of us have been traveling. Uh, in fact, I'll be traveling uh, in a few short days even right now. Um, but whenever you go to travel, especially far away from home, you're always, of course, sure to bring along your luggage, right? Before you leave the house, if you're OCD like me, you probably check five or six or maybe 20 times before you finally leave the house, just to make sure everything's in order. And of course, if you have kids, you might wanna bring your kids along too on vacation, right? But whatever the case, here this word for taking someone along with you is used here of John Mark. And it's curious. It's curious because it speaks volumes about the nature of discipleship in the first place. It speaks volumes of what it means to actually do life with each other, to tag along side by side with someone else. See, as we'll see later on in Acts 15, in a few weeks from now, we'll see that John Mark was indeed the cousin of Barnabas. So they were related, of course. There was that kind of affinity there going on. But Barnabas, apparently, as we saw earlier in Acts, had just this massive heart for discipling men who were younger than him. See, earlier in Acts, after Saul's conversion, Barnabas was quick to take him under his wing and to showcase Christ in all of Scripture to him. And so although Paul was, and Saul at that time, was so learned and intellectual, uh, he needed somebody to disciple him. And now Barnabas is seen taking yet another guy along for the trip, so to speak, all to help out a young, thriving church plant in Antioch. Well, it begs the question of us, doesn't it? You know, who are we bringing along for the ride, so to speak? Who are the Sauls and who are the John Marks in our own lives? Well, I think uh, what's important to see here is that really from the scripture even, so much of discipleship and even really the church being built up is rooted in this idea of relationships. The church and the health of the church rises and it falls, in a human way at least, through discipleship. And of course, all of that is the Lord's work through us. But Christ commanded us by his own authority in Matthew 28 to do what? To go and make disciples. And we make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them everything that Christ has commanded us. In other words, this means that discipleship is inherently relational. We have to do life side by side in order to disciple effectively. 
And so there is both this inward element of discipleship, but also an outward element. See, the word of Christ is certainly meant to stir itself into our hearts as the word is preached, as we're giving ourselves to prayer during the week, and it's also meant to be poured out for the good of others. See, if we neglect these things, we ourselves will uh, only end up becoming more self-focused and much more than we ought. Again, this word of Christ that is poured out into our souls is meant to be poured out into others for their good. Do you believe this? If so, then what spiritual practices are you taking to not only make disciples, but also to be discipled yourself? Who in your own life, then, are you trusting to sharpen you and to disciple you and encourage you in the faith? Who is someone that you can turn to when the doubts arise in your own life so that they might be assuaged rather than entertained in your minds? Who can you talk with through the fears that you face, which we all do, so that they are put away with rather than put up on a pedestal in your own soul? Who can you be honest with about the pet idols that you often find yourself succumbing to so that they are diminished and dismantled and destroyed rather than being erected and established and enjoyed? And in turn, who are you discipling? See, again, I alluded to it earlier, but we become lopsided in the Christian faith when we become so focused on self-preservation and neglect the art of discipleship. We become focused on these things and inevitably become focused on our own growth at the expense of helping to grow others. This would be in many ways akin to going out to an all-you-can-eat buffet and enjoying all kinds of food that you would normally not ever make for yourself. Maybe you don't even know how to make it like me when you go out to a buffet. But then it'd be like coming back home and never taking the time to actually burn off those calories appropriately and exercise them, right? See, being learned without teaching others, being so focused on self-feeding without feeding others, inevitably leads to stagnation. And stagnation opens the door to all kinds of spiritual conflict. It leads to ingrained mentalities. It leads to infighting within the church. It leads to biting and devouring each other. It leads to resentment of others and bitterness and pride and ego. So how do we avoid all these things? Well, I believe we have to ask ourselves a few diagnostic questions. And I would encourage you, if you're, again, a note-taker, to even write some of these things down, to think back over during the week. Here are a few diagnostic questions for us. First one being this, are charity and joy being given room in your own heart? Or are you giving yourself over to a spirit of negativity more often than you realize? Is your desire for godliness growing, or are you focusing on self-aggrandizement? Are you dining with Christ as your good shepherd, the shepherd of your souls, who's prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies and has anointed your head with oil so that your cup overflows even? Or are you letting the enemy have a seat at this Psalm 23 table? As you consider these questions, I would again, encourage you, even urge you to daily think about these things for your own sake. 
and for the exercise of your faith. But however you might have just answered them in your own mind at this moment, know that if you are in Christ, he is doing an all-consuming work in your life. He is conforming you to his image all the more as you learn, and it's a process, but as you learn to find joy in the gospel, and as your joy in the gospel becomes all the sweeter. See, just as the church grows through discipleship, Christ is the great discipler. He's the one who is teaching us. This leads us to our second point. See, the word of God, again, advances through this art of discipleship, but it also advances through our worship. And we see that here specifically in Acts 13, verses 1 through 2. Specifically, uh, we see here five men of great repute, well-known men of God, gathering together for nothing less than worship. Specifically, these five men were called prophets and teachers, and we know them by name here. A little bit about their backgrounds uh, is that Barnabas, we know earlier from Acts, was from Cyprus. You know, he was from an island just off the coast of Antioch. Uh, the next person on the list was Simeon, who had a Jewish name and yet was most likely from African descent and had um, you know, this, this African blood in him, so to speak. Lucius himself was explicitly, as it says, from the African nation of Cyrene and was likely even one of the men back in Acts 11, verse 20, who was first preaching the gospel to those in Antioch. And furthermore, Menean was a, as the text literally says in the Greek, a foster brother of King Herod Antipas, the one who had died a few years prior to this. Literally the father of King Herod Agrippa that we saw as well, just verses before. And finally, we see the fifth person being Saul, a former Pharisee. But all these people, they ranged from pastors to former uh, court members, young and old alike, rich and poor, we don't know. But in verse 2, we see all of them, regardless of their backgrounds, united in their devotion in two distinct yet complementary ways. The worship of the Lord Jesus and fasting. Now, we consider the men's backgrounds here, these five men. I can't help but think about how eclectic the church of God is as a whole. You know, this group of five people is actually fairly representative of the church by and large. And praise God for that. See, however, um, however eclectic we uh, see these men, we know that the church of God is itself eclectic all around. Antioch itself was a city that was full of all kinds of citizens from different nations and backgrounds. We saw that a few weeks ago where uh, the men were of diverse backgrounds. They were Persians and Romans and Greeks and Jews and others alike. And yet they all were gathered there together. But what's interesting is that nothing other than the gospel could bind them together in the way that they were bound up here. Nothing other than the worship of God, Jesus Christ. And the same is true for us here. We all, of course, come from fairly diverse backgrounds, right? Although none of us might be friends with kings like one of the guys here, or friends with those in high positions of authority. And if you are, then let me know after the service, perhaps. But we here at Christ's Covenant are a fairly diverse bunch. Personally, I was raised in Seattle, Washington. You know, I grew up there back until I was a teenager. And to this day, I still cannot stand the hot, heat and humidity of summer here in Virginia, 20 years later. But I know some of you absolutely live for the summer. It's the best time of the year for you, and more power to you than in that case. 
Some of you enjoy hunting all kinds of wildlife, but for some of us here, including myself, this idea is kind of foreign to us. I've never done it myself before, and so it's, an, it's a strange idea to me. Each one of us here even has our own different cultural norms and backgrounds, maybe even diverse political ideologies and personal preferences on how we would raise kids or, or be involved in the community. But the gospel, and the glory of the gospel here, <laughs> is that it draws people like us from various walks of life to the same living Savior. And greater still, the gospel message itself changes us. It forensically changes our identities and our status before God from being sinners to beloved saints set apart for him. Ephesians 2 tells us this much, that we who were once far off from Christ have been brought near to him who is called, specifically by name, our peace. Furthermore, Ephesians 2 says this, that we are no longer separated from Christ, the only mediator of the covenant of grace. We are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and considered to be strangers of this promise, having no hope or without God in this world. Rather, by Christ's blood, we have been brought near. We are fellow citizens, you and I, of the kingdom of God, along with the rest of God's people if you are in Christ. And that is a beautiful truth to, to rest in. And so friends, it's no accident that each one of us is here this morning. It's no accident that God has placed us here in his own sovereign plan to hear his gospel read over us. For it's God alone who calls and who gathers and who strengthens us and equips us. And we're equipped as we grow closer together as the body of Christ. And as we grow in our unity in our worship of the Lord Jesus. Notice again what united specifically the five leaders here in Acts 13. It was these two things, worship and fasting. See, in both their worship and their fasting, the object of their affection was Christ. The object of their affection. And these two things are significant. These ideas of worship and fasting. First, uh, this idea of worship here is literally in the Greek the word for liturgy. You know, this word that we might use here and there in certain circles. But liturgy, there in that time, in the usage 2,000 years ago, referred to this idea of public service. What's curious, though, is that the same word liturgy was picked up in the Greek translation of the Septuagint and also later on in the book of Hebrews. And in both cases, liturgy referred not just to only public service or public worship of God, but especially to the sacrificial system that was put in place and the priesthood that was behind it. And so liturgy, in many ways, has this priestly or intercessory aspect to it, praying for and interceding on behalf of another. And so these five people were, again, liturgizing, so to speak. They were interceding, they were praying, and they were perhaps praying for the Lord to be magnified in such a way that he would show mercy to a people that were undeserving, people who had not yet heard of the gospel of Christ. Likewise, there's a challenge here for us as well, that we too would become people in our worship service even, as people who become so enamored with the gospel 
that we can't help but go out and share it with others. And during the week, may we regularly and routinely pray for others that the gospel would make its way throughout our society. If, if this idea of priesthood or liturgy sounds a little foreign to you as it does to me from my own background, know that 1 Peter 2 speaks directly to this, this idea of the priesthood. See, 1 Peter 2 calls us, in fact, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, purpose to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. But catch this. The leaders in Acts 13 were not just in the midst of Christ-centered and Christ-honoring public service or public worship, the liturgy. It says they were fasting at a personal level. In other words, they were refraining from their most basic needs, the real felt needs in their own bodies even, out of a deep concern for spiritual things. I think it's safe to speculate a little bit that they desired to see God's kingdom of grace come, and they desired it so deeply that they were committed to even refraining from eating so they might replace their time of eating with prayer for the nations. I can imagine that these men who were from all over, I mean, Africa and further north and Asia Minor and Jerusalem and Cyprus and all over, I can imagine that all of them had this heart for their neighbors back home, their friends and family, and they longed for them to see and savor Jesus in the way that they did as well. I can imagine that these men were familiar with Psalms like Psalm 97 in which it even guarantees and promises that the coastlands will one day rejoice at the sight of this great salvation put before them. But little did they know as they were praying for even these things, most likely, that the Holy Spirit would speak to them. And he said these words to them in verse 2. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after fasting and praying, they did just that. They obeyed immediately. And this brings us to our third and final point for the morning. This third point that the word of God advances through the means of sacrifice as well. Now this idea of sacrifice at first might not be so evident to us, but it is present in that idea of laying on of hands. That implies a sense of sacrifice. See, oftentimes in our own culture, we don't really think of the idea of laying on of hands. If anything, it might be, you know, a pat on the back that you might give to a friend of yours or a hug or whatever it might be, you know, good game or whatever it might be. But laying on of hands is something that's really foreign to us, isn't it? However, in that culture, it was more than just this sign of camaraderie or approval or, hey, well done. It was a lot more than that. It was a sign of blessing in terms of the people, but it was also a sign of being commended to the grace of God. See, in Acts 6, verse 6, the laying on of hands, the ordination of the seven deacons there, when, the, when their hands were laid on them, uh, they were essentially commended to God's grace. You know, we want you to know that God is with you. And later on in Acts 14, verse 26, it describes uh, Paul and, and Barnabas as they come back from their missionary journey as when they, were, when they had hands laid on them that they were commended to the grace of God. But what does this commendation actually mean? Again, we don't really use that word even that much, right? Well, commendation literally has this nuance of 
being handed over to someone else. You're commending them to someone else. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, the priest would literally lay his hands upon the sacrifice, essentially saying, for the good of the people that this represents, the sins are being laid upon this animal. I'm committing this animal to death so that the wrath of God will be appeased for their sin. And this Old Testament theme of the laying on of hands was picked up on again, even all the way from the Old Testament to Hebrews. This laying on of hands showcased this sense of grace and forgiveness of God that was there present in the midst of this offering, this commendation of these animals being committed to death. But here, not only is there maybe a sense of that uh, sacrificial system in the mind of these people, but also a sense of God's uh, ordination of these people to a certain task. See, both pictures, though, whether it be the Old Testament sacrifices or the ordination and calling of certain people, whether it be the prophets and priests and kings of the Old Testament or the elders and deacons of the New, both of these things picture and signify a type of death, if you will. They signify a death of a former way of life. See, for Barnabas and Saul, they were acknowledged as being chosen by God and by God alone to do his work. Here they had just returned from Jerusalem. I can imagine they were on cloud nine, just super excited to finally be back in Antioch and do the work of ministry there. And they even brought John Mark along with them. They were so ecstatic. And yet God had much greater things in plan for them. See, through the sacrifice of their dreams, their hopes, their plans, God would commission them to bring the, na- uh, the word of Christ to the nations. And so from Acts 13 all the way until the end of the book of Acts, it goes on to describe the unfolding of this wonderful plan of God. But in order for that life to be proclaimed in God's providence, he chose to showcase a kind of death-like surrender of self. See, in this act of surrender, where Saul and Barnabas were sent out even and commissioned, there is a much bigger picture on display, a picture that speaks of Christ. See, in the Gospels, account, uh, the account of the Gospels, we read of Christ who knew no sin, yet was delivered over to the hands of sinful men. And as Saul preached later on in Acts 13 as well, as he's there on his missionary journey in Pisidia, Antioch, he said these words concerning Christ, who is, again, handed over to the hands of sinful men. He said this, that though the Israelites and their rulers found in Jesus no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of Christ in the scriptures, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb but God raised him from the dead. So friends, if your faith is in Christ Jesus, rest assured that he laid down his life for you. He willingly let his own life be handed over to those who despised him for your sake. You are precious in his sight. And he has purposed for his word to continue to make inroads in your life. Paul himself 
experienced this later on, especially as he experienced suffering and the sacrifices that these things would then bring about in his own life. He would later on write in Philippians 3 the following words, and I pray that as you hear these words, this would also be your life's confession as well. But he learned this through hardship, these words in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like Christ in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May this be true of us as well, friends. Friend, if you are not yet a believer in Christ, I would urge you in this time to see Christ Jesus as your greatest treasure, the only treasure in all the world that is worth laying down your own life for. He laid down his life for you and offers you salvation in his name. And so I'd ask that you would put your faith in him if you do not yet know him as your savior, the one who can rescue you from your sin. For he is the only rescue of sinners, sinners like us, from the penalty of sin. He is the only comfort for the weary soul. He is the only shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. So trust in him. As we close, I want to return us now to the beginning for a brief moment. See, at the very beginning, I mentioned that the Word of God advances through discipleship and through uh, worship and through sacrifice alike. But here, I pray that we see Christ above all. Above any of our own efforts, we know that Christ is the one who disciples us. We know that Christ is the object of our worship, worthy of all of our adoration. And we know that Christ is the true and only sacrifice, the one who laid down his life for our sake. So with these things in mind, let's go ahead and pray to him. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who, as I just mentioned, laid down your life for us, and yet you didn't remain in the grave. You rose again bodily from the grave, giving all those who trust in your name life eternal. And so we ask, God, that we would rest upon this wonderful truth of the gospel this morning. May we know it afresh, as if hearing this gospel for the first time again. May our hearts be so enamored and smitten with you. And we ask all this in your holy name.